Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here at uh, an undisclosed location in beautiful downtown New Jersey. Uh, joining me on this episode, we have Professor Stephen Walt of the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy, which we urge you all to order online, even as you're listening to this episode. We have in Washington, D.C., Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And we have in central London, Corey Shockey of IISS, um, uh, who has been in the same place for two consecutive episodes. I can't even, I can't, I can't even believe it. Uh, you are the, you are the, you are the, the, the most peripatetic uh, of all of us, Corey. And I'm leaving for Bahrain the day after tomorrow. Wow. Wow. That, now that's a vacation spot. Um, uh, well, look, let's talk about that part of the world a little bit, uh, because, you know, you can view what happened with Jamal Khashoggi in a, in a number of ways. There is a uh, the human way, which I think is the way that often gets lost in all of this, a kind, uh, intelligent, thoughtful, courageous man was brutally murdered by a state that was afraid of his words and afraid of his critique, uh, which, by the way, was quite a balanced critique. There's an article in Newsweek by our friend Rula Jebrial, which was an interview with Khashoggi, in which his critique of, of, of the Saudi government was, was, was you know, pointed. Um, but but he he was hopeful that change was possible. But the 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 murder was so horrific um, that we immediately then go to the next level and we see um, and question the motives of the Saudi government for lie after lie after lie. And indeed, we see in all of that, and the thing is elevated up another level. Um, evidence of some of the other things they've done that have been equally horrific or more so, whether it's kidnapping the prime minister of Lebanon, which came and went without much notice, or the war in Yemen, which has been catastrophic and the human rights or, 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 or humanitarian consequences of that war, uh, or some of their other repressive measures in their own country. Uh, and so we immediately go up to this next level and then we have the Trump administration's defense of that reflexively, despite the fact that their own intelligence community has said, um, no, 
This probably goes to the level of the crown prince. Uh, it's hard to imagine it could have been done without his approval. Uh, he's got blood on his hands, and the president has separated himself from all of that. Um, to you know, uh, another level of the conversation, which is, is this actually a, a turning point in America's relations with the Middle East, uh, America's relations with Saudi Arabia, and, and a reshuffling of the whole calculus of the region because the U.S. was depending on this relationship to deal with uh, Iran in a certain way, the Israelis were depending on the relationship with the Saudis to deal with their objectives with Iran and their view of how to stabilize the region. Uh, the Turks are trying to capitalize on it. The Qataris are trying to capitalize on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, what we want to do is try to sort of pull some of these strands together. And, and let me start with you, Steve. As you look at this, do you think it's a watershed? Do you think something big has changed? Or is this just yet the latest in a long line of uh, kind of human tragedies and, and, and um, you know, political um, acts of inhumanity, uh, and, and we're going to get over it and just move on, uh, uh, put, putting it behind us too quickly? Uh, well, let me be, uh, I guess, maybe overly cynical about this. I mean, your points about the human tragedy here, I think, are really uh, quite striking. And that's part of why this incident has you know, galvanized attention in the way lots of previous incidents, not to mention uh, the carnage that's been going on in Yemen, have not uh, energized people. But, um, you know, here's the cynical view of this, um, that, that in fact, there's going to be this uh, outpouring of attention and people will be outraged. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll have the midterms in the United States and all of the conversation will be about whatever happens there and what the implications are for Trump and every, everybody else. Uh, the Saudis, after trying out a whole series of palpably uh, unbelievable stories. We'll finally sort of admit that something really horrible happened, but it wasn't intentional. Uh, and we've got the fall guys and we're going to punish them. And it wasn't, of course, the prince. Um, and so that will give people the cover story, which the Trump administration is eager uh, to grab. And all of the other parties that have a vested interest in what's going on here, uh, including, uh, you know, the Gulf states as well, uh, some others, uh, the Israelis, the Egyptians, uh, the Jordanians, etc., will uh, fall into line. And sort of a year from now, in fact, this will be the best possible outcome for uh, Mohammed bin Salman because he'll have gotten away with it. Uh, at least in the short term, and he will have sent a very chilling message to people who might be tempted to take issue with what he's doing, namely that he can do stuff like this. Seems to me the one big wild card here is the private sector, um, uh, which has reacted uh, in, in some surprising ways to this. Uh, and if they conclude that the crown prince is simply too mercurial, too unreliable, too impulsive, too vengeful to really want to do much business with, then his whole plan for Vision 2030 starts to look very dicey. And at that point, you might imagine things happening inside the royal family that would clip his wings. But apart from uh, the private sector getting serious about this, I guess I'm not optimistic that this will be a real turning point. Corey, same question. Uh you know, it's so hard to predict when things are going to crystallize in 
public attitudes. My sister always points out that um, that in politics, you that uh, information only gets traction if it reinforces something the public kind of already believes about someone, right? So when George H.W. Bush was campaigning in a grocery store and tried to make polite conversation with the checkout clerk by asking how the scanner works, what it reminded all of us is this is a guy who has no idea what the price of milk is. Um, and I think this may be one of those moments for the for Mohammed bin Salman and for Saudi Arabia in general. They have been on such an aggressive marketing campaign that they're this new sparkly country. And, you know, he now says, I never said I was a liberalizer, but he sure tried to create that impression um, for Tom Friedman and others. And, and now it looks like, you know, the details are so grisly and evidently uh, Jamal Khashoggi's uh, fiance has told her side of the story to the Turkish government. There's evidently a Skype conversation uh, with Riyadh instructing the team in the Saudi consulate to kill Khashoggi. Like these gruesome, lurid details that the Turkish government are spooling out in a steady drip to maximize the damage to the Saudis and to Mohammed bin Salman in particular, who I'm sure they now don't want to have sitting on the throne of Saudi Arabia for the next 50 years. So, so are trying to apply the never wound a king advice that Herodotus gives us. But I... I really do think this is likely to affix in average people's minds uh, that this Saudi government isn't like us, is brutal, medieval, repressive, um, and and that's going to be a really hard thing to shake by people who are trying to argue for continued American cooperation with Saudi Arabia. I actually think the Trump administration, President Trump in particular, is a fabulous bellwether of this because, you know, um, he, he may be revolting, but he's not stupid. And one thing he's really good at is reading where public attitudes are on visceral issues. And he started out by saying this was no big deal. And now he says they're lying and he's not going to stand in the way of congressional sanctions. The only reason the president would do that is if he thought he was going to have to do that. Well, I guess another way to, to tackle this question, Rosa, is to ask the question, what do we think the near-term consequences are going to be? Will there be any near-term consequences? Clearly, the Trump administration has been trying to play this game like, well, you know, maybe you got to do some sanctions, but don't sanction arms sales, which, of course, um, it, you know, is one of the areas where we have greatest leverage. Um, don't and of course, any items that could be used to murder anybody. Yeah, well, exactly. And and then, of course, Trump's been out there saying, well, you know, this supports a million jobs or 600,000 jobs or 400,000 jobs or you know, he started with 40,000, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he started with learning from the Saudis. 
Yeah, he went to a million. Well said, Steve. Well, exactly. I think his numbers are as implausible as all the Saudi uh, stories that they've come up with. But it does seem like it'll have some effects. And let me give you two things that it strikes me it may affect. You may disagree with that, and then maybe you've got some others. There were some women who had been arrested by the Saudi government as dissidents and were going to be put to death. Uh, It was awful. It was indefensible. Um, I wonder if that's actually going to happen or not. I, I wonder if, you know, this is this is perhaps inadvertently saved those women's lives. Uh, the other thing is that initially in October of this year, but but now uh, most recently it was pushed till January. There was going to be the announcement of something called the Middle East Strategic Alliance or something, Mesa. Uh, <laughs> wait to see them submit that to Congress. Right. Well, and but but that's not going to happen. There's no way the United States, even with Trump at the helm, is going to go in and try to promote this alliance. And and, you know, I we don't get the sense that that's probably dead, too. Uh, and those are both things that suggest their ramifications. And of course, there's a political story that's up today, um, the day we're taping this, which is talking about you know, can or must King Salman fire his son as crown prince, which, of course, is the big, you know, the $64,000 question and would be a real sign this had an effect. I'm wondering what your your thoughts are on, on knock-on effects that we can predict. I'm sort of with Steve. I doubt that there will be any significant knock-on effects. Um, I, You know, I think that this Unfortunately, right? I mean, you know, this should be a a great wake up call for us to think very deeply about the nature and extent of uh, U.S. ties and military ties with the Saudis uh, and to think about our role in enabling a, a... government that has been extremely abusive in many ways um, and, and, and and pushing us to reevaluate our sort of fantasies about MBS and the potential role he could play. Um, that in an ideal world that would happen. I don't think it is actually likely. Uh, I think that in a month, no one will be talking about this. I doubt that it will lead to any significant uh, sanctions or other actions uh, against the Saudis, um, I think we'll be back to normal very, very quickly. I, you know, I sort of wish that weren't the case, but, but the combination of our our sort of standard short national attention span and the deep investment so many parts of the U.S. government bureaucracy have in uh, Saudi relationships with the Saudis and arms sales to the Saudis and so forth. Um, you know, military cooperation, intelligence cooperation with the Saudis. Uh, I think that those forces are likely to prevail. I will, I will say, um, I was struck by me. I was struck by a comment from Jared Kushner, one of the many members of the Trump administration who, who was, uh, particularly starry eyed about MBS. Um, uh, and he, Probably not a coincidence. Um, did his apparently what it was his first televised interview since 2016, um, and was asked by Van Jones um, about uh, Khashoggi and the Khashoggi case, to which he said, "Well, you know, we're still fact finding." And then and this is a direct quote. He said, "We're getting facts in from multiple places. Once those facts come in, the Secretary of State will work with our national security team to help us determine what we want to believe." Um, <laughs> 
and, and I think that's exactly right. This is not about help us determine what happened. This is about helping, you know, they're going to have to decide what they choose to pretend that they believe. Um, uh, and my guess, as Steve suggested, is that what they will pretend to believe is going to be the official Saudi line, which was, you know, mistakes have been made. Yes, it's perhaps maybe sort of kind of true that we wanted to interrogate him and maybe even sort of kind of true, you know, that we wanted to get him, you know, illegally render him back to Saudi Arabia. Um, but certainly, you know, the the crown prince was completely oblivious to all of this. And this was just a bunch of renegade rogue actors and they all, they will all be executed. So don't worry, everything's fine. Rosa, can I jump in there for a second? Yeah. I think you made a, you made a really interesting point. Um, there is, of course, she does that. She does that on almost every other episode. No, I, I only rarely. Well, there is this extremely extensive uh, defense cooperation uh, set of arrangements with uh, the Saudis and uh, deep ties between the two intelligence services. And it seems to me if the Trump administration wanted to send a message, the way to do that would not be on page one and not with sanctions and not even with canceling arms sales, but basically to start slowing down or diluting some of that intelligence cooperation. You know, uh, meetings where you were going to send a colonel or you were going to send a general, you send a colonel, meetings where you were going to have some intelligence people, suddenly everyone's kind of busy because it's budget season. We'll have to put that off for a while. What you're essentially doing is sending a message through the Saudi national security establishment that this sort of thing has to stop. And that's, I think, uh, might be a more effective way of dealing with it. Um, by the way, we will know that Trump has flipped on this when Kushner gives an interview and starts claiming that he barely knew Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, they'd only met once. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's that's definitely true. You know, and building on your point, Steve, one of the things we could do is we could recall our ambassador if we actually had an ambassador, um, uh, which, of course, we don't. Uh, another thing we could do is force them to deal with the most annoying person in the government, uh, other than John Bolton, which we're already doing uh, with 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 Jared Kushner. So we're 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 our options are limited in that regard. Now, some of you folks who listen to Deep State Radio religiously, and I, we know there are a number of you out there. In fact, there are Deep State Radio cults popping up all across America. Um, you may wonder why between these episodes, when we're joined by Ed Luce, I don't direct the first question of the second podcast to Ed. Um, and that's because Ed typically goes, you know, his butler comes in, gives him a, a brief massage, uh, people wave palm fronds at him, uh, and a macchiato with his image on the froth in the top is... <laughs> is handed to him. And I, and I would just want to give him time for that. Is the macchiato prepared? Was it prepared properly? Have you had to flog your staff? It was prepared properly, but unfortunately there was only half and half left in my fridge and, and macchiato with half and half does not work. Um, but the butler did iron my newspaper and it's looking very crisp and presentable. Um, and so uh, there was a good division of labor there in that, in, that, in that short pause. Do you think it would work out if I had a butler iron my iPad? <laughs> no, you, you need that nice spray that cleans the screen. Special yeah. Apple product. Just toss it right in the washer. Uh, <laughs> I, I have tried that, and it was not successful. Yeah. All right. Well, so Ed, one of the th we're talking about sort of the knock-on consequences of this. One of the things that sort of 
people haven't been talking about as much as they might, uh, is the consequences of the Khashoggi event for other countries. And I can think of four that strike me um, as, as where consequences are pretty big. Um, the Turks, obviously, are trying to capitalize on this. Um, uh, the Iranians obviously see this as just the best turn of events they could possibly have imagined. Um, the Qataris are, 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 are uh, you know, crowing about it a little bit. And you'll see this in some of their, their, their news outlets. Uh, the Israelis are really upset about it. And if we wanted to go a step further, I think the Chinese may you know, benefit from it to some extent. Um, but I just thought I'd turn to you to sort of put it in a little bit more of a, a global context. How do you think, what do you think of the way the Turks, for example, are playing this? Um, but uh, the jury is still out on that. I mean, there is a sort of virtuosity to how Erdogan has um, uh, parceled out the information, has sort of strung this process out, um, which is impressive sort of from a technical um, information management point of view. But of course, there's a spectacular hypocrisy there that the treatment of journalists in Turkey, including foreign journalists, um, is amongst the worst in the world. Um, so, you know, we, we, we will need, I think, at some point, um, uh, sooner rather than later, independent verification of the facts that, uh, you know, Turkey has been presenting. I mean, I think they, they are su such uh, you know, unequivocal facts that, um, uh, that it, you know, it's indisputable. Khashoggi was murdered and the Saudis have been forced to sort of admit a, a, a very pale imitation of that truth. But we'll need a far larger independent investigation. Uh, I think the implications uh, more globally is, look, when the Saudis have ever been backed into a corner, have ever needed to get something, what they tend to do is shower cash around. That's the Saudi way because the Saudis um, uh, always have a lot of cash. Um, and the rise in the oil price over the last 18 months or so, particularly this year, has replenished the coffers. You know, all the talk of Saudi austerity has been suspended um, since the oil price rise um, has come into effect. So showering cash on arms purchases from the United States is one obvious um, um, element of this. Um, and um, dividing um, dividing the Europeans. I mean, the British are a very, very large um, seller, exporter of arms to the Saudis, as are the French. Merkel has announced she's going to suspend arms sales but uh, from Germany, but Germany is not one of the large arms suppliers um, to, to, to Saudi Arabia. So cash is one element. Another, I think, is, um, is the oil price itself. Trump has been grumbling um, about um, the rise in the oil price. And the Saudis you know, have the ability to turn the spigot on a bit more and bring that price down. And I suspect they'll be far more amenable. MBS will be far more amenable to doing that now than he was two weeks ago. Uh, and I think that Jared Kushner's great goal, this completely sort of um, chimerical Arab-Israeli peace plan that he's been pushing, um, you know, is going to get more Saudi support it's already been supported by the Saudis, um, uh, but that was checked by the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. I think it's now going to get unequivocal, full-throated Saudi support, um, uh, again, as, as a price to pay for, um, uh, as a price, price to, as, as a way of, of, of buying off um, the fallout from, from, from this murder. So I share generally the view 
um, that the that this will blow over um, uh, and that um, the Saudis will get away with it. And one of the principal ways they'll get away with it, the principal way, is through is through money and money talks, particularly with Trump. One other dimension to this is worth mentioning. Um, we've got the split, the growing split between Europe and the United States on Chikpoa, as as Rosa calls it, um, the Iran nuclear deal, um, with um, the um, sanctions beginning on Iranian oil exports uh, and secondary sanctions on those who don't comply with it starting next month, early next month. I think that the split... Um, between the United States and Europe on Iran is likely to become further pronounced and exacerbated um, by the response, the diverging responses to the Saudi uh, to the Saudi autocracy into MBS. And I think Merkel is probably very much out in front of the European popular attitude towards the Saudis there, and others um, are going to feel pressured to follow suit, and and that again is going to diverge. From the United States, so Trump will see this as an opportunity to sell even more arms to um, Mohammed bin Salman, and Mohammed bin Salman will be all too obliging. Well, let me. I want to switch the subject here um, and, uh, 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 to, to, to something altogether different. But I, I just want to throw in my own view here because it's slightly different from everybody's. Usually, it's more consistent. I actually think that we may be at a point that, that a point of inflection. Uh, my sense is that the Khashoggi murder, horrific as it is, has also been a moment to uh, remind everybody in the in the in the in the starkest possible way of the other events that preceded it, and thus of the nature of this regime and the nature of the crown prince. Uh, I also think it's been been a moment that has had a, uh, a a consequence, which is rather remarkable in the current environment, and that is that it's produced something like bipartisan agreement where you've got Republicans like Marco Rubio and uh, Lindsey Graham and Bob Corker and Ben Sass and some others uh, offering very harsh assessment of the Saudis at the same time uh, that the Democratic leadership has. I think that if the Democrats take the House, you're going to see quite an aggressive uh, set of measures introduced, if not actually followed through upon, um, by the Democrats in the House, and real reluctance to revert back to the the relationship as normal, uh, or as it has been recently. So my view is that this may be a slightly bigger change than everybody else has. Now, Steve, to, just to move on to this this next subject because our time is limited here, I do want to note, however, that as we're having this conversation, I notice in Twitter. Um, minutes ago, that Ian Bremmer uh, had tweeted out, Stephen Walt's new book, The Hell of Good Intentions, is excellent and comes at a critical time, <laughs> explaining just how American foreign policy went off the rails and what foreign policy folks can do about it. Um, I just thought you wanted me to report that. I, I didn't. I didn't want to let it slip through the cracks. There, uh, I was really looking forward to reading Steve's book until you said that. <laughs> oh, but I'm going to retweet that. I knew. I knew there was. He is a very smart man. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make that the hill you die on, there, Steve. Um, in this conversation, he has good taste in in books. He has excellent taste in books. Exactly right. And. Uh, um, 
and beyond that, there have been various debates in the in deep state radio about that subject. Um, but let me let me change the subject because Steve, one of the things, and I think this echoes to some extent with your book, one of the most remarkable things of, among the many about the the Trump administration has been the degree to which they have actively sought to dismantle the international order in a complete reversal over sort of 70, 75 years of U.S. foreign policy. That's not to say there haven't been American presidents who are uncomfortable with the U.N. or uncomfortable with some aspects about foreign policy. But the Paris Accords or TPP or NAFTA or going after some fundamental principles of the WTO or going after um, various subsidiary organizations of the U.N. or not funding those, uh, that, that's been you know systematic, not to mention you know, various attacks on NATO and so forth. And now in the most recent set of, uh, most recent development in this regard, uh, John Bolton, the national security advisor, is going to Russia and he's going to say or present this idea that the United States is withdrawing from the INF uh, uh, treaty, um, which was a Reagan achievement, uh, because the Russians are not complying. Now, to me, this is a kind of a, Trump administration trifecta. They get to pull out of an international agreement. They love doing that. They get to do something that actually helps the Russians. They love doing that. And they get to do something that may in the long run help U.S. defense contractors uh, by spending more money on new kinds of systems. And they love doing that. None of those things are particularly good for the United States. I'm wondering how you view this particular step. Uh that, that's a great summary, by the way. Uh, I'd say sort of four things. I mean, it is important to note that Russia does bear some responsibility here. Uh, they have not been uh, observing the terms of the treaty either. So in a sense, they've given the Trump administration an opportunity. I, any other administration, if they really uh, saw this as a critical issue, would have gotten tough with uh, the Russia to get them sort of back in the treaty. And there are various ways we could have done that. Um, clearly, Bolton, who never saw uh, a treaty that he liked, as near as I can tell, uh, sees it uh, differently. And that's really kind of my second point. This has been a long theme of Bolton's view that treaties and international law and international institutions of most kinds are simply a constraint on American sovereign power, and we'd be better off uh, without them. I think a very short-sighted view. Um, third point is that this is going to royal NATO even more. And again, for some people in the Trump administration, such as the president, that's probably an added bonus. Uh, not fond of the transatlantic relationship, doesn't really like NATO, doesn't like any European politicians, not even Macron that much. Um, so if this causes Europeans some more heartburn, uh, that's probably a win. And the last point I'd make is it's not entirely clear to me uh, how much a departure this is uh, from, say, the last 50 years of American foreign policy. Yes, it's a little bit different, but I think of it as really kind of a return to the uh, unilateralism I associate with the early George W. Bush administration and with Dick Cheney as well. It's also just important to recognize that John Bolton is not some kind of renegade, right? Um, he's on the hawkish end of the spectrum, no doubt, but he is part of the American foreign policy elite with a longstanding job at the American Enterprise Institute, repeated uh, senior appointments in top uh, areas when he writes and publishes things. He publishes in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and not some crazy right-wing uh, website. Uh, so he's a, not an outlier. He 
is in fact uh, also a part of the establishment. Uh, yeah, um, I think the only treaty that he actually uh, uh, or agreement of that nature that he's actually uh, been enthusiastic about was the one that he had to sign with the devil in order to get this job. Uh, <laughs> well played, David. <laughs> Uh, Corey, what's your take on this INF um, shenanigans? Uh, I am less uh, condemnatory of the administration because, as Steve says, uh, the Russians have not been in compliance with the INF treaty for uh, four years now. And both the Obama and the Trump administrations have been trying to find ways to cajole or coerce Russia back into compliance with their obligations under the treaty, uh, including the Secretary of Defense writing in the National Defense Strategy that if the Russians did not return to compliance with their INF obligations, the United States would deploy a submarine-launched nuclear cruise missile. Uh, which is not a violation of the treaty, but would increase America's nuclear arsenal and direct that increase as a threat to the Russians. That had no appreciable effect. So I think the challenge to people like me who believe we should stay in the treaty is how exactly do you plan to bring the Russians back into compliance with it? I wish I thought highly enough of the White House's uh, strategic thinking to believe that the president uh, mentioning this at a campaign rally and uh, John Bolton going to Moscow uh, to threaten this was was part of a means to bring the Russians back into compliance. Uh, I'm skeptical of that. There's also another another reason driving in particular the Defense Department to to not want to remain in the treaty if the Russians aren't going to comply with it, which is that having ground launch ballistic and cruise missiles of INF ranges, that is 500 to 5,500 nautical miles, would be extraordinarily operationally useful in any fight with China. And so the frustration that I think some national security folks have is if the Russians aren't complying, why are we paying this enormous operational price in managing China? Um, and that's that's not crazy. Um, no, that's 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 true. You know, uh, another point on this, uh, Ed, was brought up by um, friend Steve Sestanovich in an article in the American Interest, in which he points out that one of the reasons to stay in the treaty is it provides some moral high ground and some leverage and at least some targets to work towards, even if it's not working as it's supposed to. Uh, and, you know, this is in keeping with the general sense that there have been other agreements which have been flawed or not working exactly right, where it might have been more in our interest to stay in them and to redouble efforts to make them work, uh, amend them, et cetera. And, of course, first and foremost in this regard is Jick Poa. Um, and I'm just wondering what your view is on this this particular move. Um, I mean, lack of surprise, I, I think, as uh, Steve mentioned earlier, um, you know, Bolton does not like any kind of international treaty. Um, and therefore, 
fear that this is going to lead on to um, America's withdrawal from the New Start um, Treaty, um, which uh, you know, which was ratified in 2010, which covers all other range um, uh, nuclear um, missiles, so um, nuclear weapons. So I, I think um, if this was a different administration watching Russia's um, open flouting of the uh, of the INF Treaty. Um, and uh, an administration that had uh, um, steps two, three, four, and five laid out for how it would then uh, attempt to pressure Russia, you know, into a new treaty or, or at least to um, moderating its behaviour, then I would feel more encouraged. But this isn't that administration. This is the Trump administration. It's um, so the key actor here is Bolton, um, and I believe that the results of this are, are going to uh, strongly raise the probability of a new nuclear arms race, uh, which is great for business. It's great for so the, the Trump, um, the, the parts of the defense industry that support Trump. It will produce 400,000 jobs or whatever, you know, Trump plucks out of thin air. Um, uh, uh, but it, but it will be bad for, for global stability and it will be bad for fiscal priority as well. So I, I tend to take a rather cynical view of this. Um, um, but it's not, you know, I should sort of double underline, uh, nuclear treaties are not, are not my area of expertise. And so I would defer to others in, in terms of the possible complexities I might have missed. Well, let me, let me, uh, turn to Rosa who worked, um, in the, in the, in that five-sided building for a while and has been uh, involved in issues like this for a while. And if you look at the Trump administration's record, there was a nuclear uh, deal with I Iran and they've pulled out of it. There's this INF treaty that dates back several decades. They're now pulling out of it. Uh, they were seeking to negotiate some kind of agreement with the North Koreans. Uh, and while they are continuing to negotiate, the North Koreans are continuing to build more nuclear weapons by anybody's, uh, by, by, by reasonable estimates and are adding several new nuclear warheads um, a year at, at the rate they're going. Um, it, it does seem to me like this point that Ed is making may be the case, that we are moving towards um, a new kind of nuclear arms race. And, you know, compounding this has been Trump's position, which is, you know, let's build new kinds of nukes that we can actually use, you know, those smaller tactical nukes that are that are so great. Right. Little teeny tiny tailored nukes. To, right. The nukes the kids can take to school with them in their backpacks. Right. And use them as little pranks uh, without yeah. doing any fundamental harm. No, I, I think that's right. I think this is probably a good time to be an uh, international arms dealer uh, pretty much across the board. In fact, um, you know, that the, the, the the, are, you, are you contemplating a career? I, I, I am. I am when the law professor business is really not as lucrative as I had hoped. Um, uh, but 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 I think I think, you know, going to a, a point that Steve has made in his book and, and elsewhere, you know, as we see a sort of return to great power politics, uh, including great power arms races, um, you know, business is going to be booming for in the global arms trade. Um no, it's kind of scary. I mean, I will say that the Trump approach to nuclear weapons is not as different as I might wish from the Obama administration's approach to nuclear weapons. Um, you know, under Obama, the the Pentagon's view also was, you know, we need to we need to modernize our nuclear arsenal, uh, and we do need to cautiously consider 
additional innovations and investments in so-called, you know, tactical uh, nuclear weapons. So, so I, I actually see more continuity on that piece when it comes to the U.S. nuclear arsenal. But I do think that the sharp break that we see, uh, you know, and, and we, we've seen this obviously with the Trump administration across the board when it comes to both multilateral treaties and, and quite a few bilateral treaties, um, you know, that the Obama administration coupled that uh, approach to, to nuclear weapons with a great willingness to uh, not only maintain, but indeed uh, consider, you know, further development of, of uh, non-proliferation tre treaties such as the New START treaty, whereas the Trump administration seems dedicated to setting a world record for how many treaties can be, be torn up in a single presidential administration. And, and, you know, it's, again, also going back to, you know, Steve's earlier comments on, on Trump in our last episode, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous game in the best of circumstances when you have a president who has a really clear sense of what he's doing and what the risks are, you know, and and what are the bluffs and what are things that are not bluffs and when you know, but when you have a president such as Donald Trump who I don't think has a remotely clear-headed sense of where he's going or what he's trying to achieve, uh uh it gets particularly dangerous. Um, yeah, well, those are those are those are good points. We're coming to the end of our, our episode here. I, I do want to bring things sort of full circle with Trump administration policy, uh, Steve, and maybe slightly outside your area of expertise. But if you take Rose's point about the small nuclear weapons and being able to bring them to school in your backpacks, it does raise the possibility that if you give teachers nuclear weapons, you can reduce school shootings. <laughs> Uh, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there isn't somebody in the uh, bowels of the White House working on a memo there. Uh, you know, I do want to end up with uh, sort of a broader strategic thought about Trump and Russia and the INF thing. If you step back and think about it for a second, it would be very much in Europe's interest uh, to try and resolve things with Russia or at least dramatically improve them, get Russia out of Ukraine, stop uh, intimidating the Baltic states, etc. So that'd be in Europe's interest. It would be in Russia's interest to get the sanctions lifted uh, and have a more normal relationship. And it would be in the United States' interest to start pulling Moscow away from Beijing. So there's actually a win-win-win here uh, for these three actors. But of course, Donald Trump is now the last president who could try to pull that off because his own relationship with Russia is so tangled, so messy, and he, he and his entourage have never been able to develop a straight story on that. that he can't actually try and advance something that would be in everybody's interest. And so what we're getting instead is a return to sort of a new version of the Cold War, which is not really in anybody's interest. Yeah, not to mention his deteriorating relationship with the Chinese, um, about which there has been more written this week in terms of the trade front. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time in this episode. Uh, I, again, I think it's been an especially good one. And we've been very fortunate to have with us uh, Steve Walt, whose new book is called The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy, uh, which we encourage you to go out and to buy. Uh, and of course, Corey Shockey, who's off in uh, some fancy uh, affair now in 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 London um, and uh, reliving that kind of English glamour uh, at loose uh, at the loose manor in northwest Washington. 
uh, and of course, uh, Rosa Brooks. Thank you all for joining us. And for those of you who are interested in all the rest that we've got going on at Deep State Radio Network, uh, go to deepstateradionetwork.com, listen to the podcast, listen to the past podcast, listen to the one-on-ones we do each week, uh, register, and you can get our newsletter, which is growing extremely rapidly. We've got a very big audience for it. Uh, it's a really valuable, interesting piece and a way to connect you to some of the other content that we've got. And um, uh, I uh, uh, encourage you to... Uh, uh, to, to go there, to sign up, to become a member, uh, to support Deep State Radio Network, and to come back next week uh, for the next episodes of Deep State Radio. Thanks to all. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.